Welcome to another edition of the TDN Writers Room. My name is Bill Finley. I'm a correspondent for the Thoroughbred Daily News. I'm also the co-host of the Down the Stretch Show every Saturday on Sirius with my partner, Dave Johnson. I'm Randy Moss with NBC Sports. I don't have Lucy, but I see Zoe as a trusted companion. I do. This is Doodle. Hi, Doodle. In Saratoga, he just wanted to say hi. Uh, I'm Zoe Cabman with XBTV and First Racing. We'll let Doodle exit stage left. All right, guys, let's get into a busy week of news. And we want to start with what I thought was a bombshell announcement out of the Stronach Group on Sunday that at the end of the meet in December, Golden Gate Fields will be no more. They are closing down Golden Gate Fields to consolidate racing at Santa Anita. Zoe Cabin is not going to take part in this. I think that's fair. She works for Santa Anita and we would obviously um, have some issues there and as she does as well. So Randy and I We'll tackle that subject. And uh, Zoe will be back as we get into other stories on the TDN Writers Room podcast this week. The TDN Writers Room podcast is brought to you by Keeneland, and we're thankful very much for their support. Uh, Randy, I had always thought that someday there would be some sort of consolidation in California. I also thought it was needed because you look and see what's happening with the horse uh, population, the number of foals down every year, horses running fewer and fewer times. There just wasn't enough to go around for San Anita and Golden Gate. But I always thought what they would likely do and what I thought was the right solution was to merge Golden Gate with San Anita, Del Mar, et cetera, and have a circuit where maybe you'd race three months a year at Golden Gate and the rest of the time you would race at Del Mar, San Anita and Los Alamitos. Uh, this was a, quite a, a story, and it obviously has huge ramifications for the future of horse racing. I have so many thoughts that, you know, the one thing, uh, uh, you know, and opinions on this. First thing I just want to say is that, you know, before we take a deep dive into this, you have to feel bad for the people at Golden mm-hmm. Gate Field, whether that's the mutual clerk who's going to lose his job, whether it's uh, the stewards that might not get reassigned, uh, whether it's the guy working at the, the hot dog stand, uh, and also a lot of the trainers. I think that the smaller guy that doesn't have the kind of stock that can compete at Santa Anita or doesn't want to uh, uproot his lifestyle and living in Northern California, moving to Southern California, I think a lot of them are going to go out of business. feel really bad for those people. But uh, then again, you know, having said that, consolidation is a uh, factor in horse racing when you have fewer horses, when you have uh, horses racing less often, the sport needs to contract. And this is an example of that. Exactly. Right. I mean, let me start by saying I don't think horse racing is a dying sport. Right. I mean, it, it, it's very robust in a lot of different areas around the country. All you have to do is look at Saratoga and look at Del Mar when it opens and Churchill, Keeneland, Oakland. You know, a lot of tracks still do very big business. But in general, as we all know, uh, the amount of wagering of the wagering dollar bet in this country that's earmarked for horse racing has gotten less and less and less. And that's one of the reasons why consolidation is necessary. And uh, this is not the first major racetrack that's been closed. You can go down a list that actually sounds a little depressing when you start to uh, to, to tick off the names. Right. I mean, Hollywood Park, Hialeah, 
Bay Meadows before this, Calder, Arlington. You can, you know, you can name a lot of major racetracks that have gone by the wayside over the last 25 or 30 years. Axarbin in Omaha was going great guns at one point. Uh, so I agree with you. Contraction is inevitable. This won't be the last major track. Aqueduct, of course, once Belmont gets remodeled, is probably also going to going to uh, going to disappear at some point. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's a part of the wagering landscape right now and a part of horse racing. And I do share your sentiment that I feel sorry for some of the smaller guys, some of the smaller horsemen. Uh, based in the Bay Area, who really can't afford to completely relocate and up in their lives. And even if their horses were good enough to compete in Southern California to make that transition, um, it's just unfortunate. It really is. Yeah, there's a, a factor in this that hasn't got a lot of attention, but we need to remember that California is almost the last state left and the last major racing state left where they get no contributions from casinos, slot machines, the historical racing uh, machines, et cetera. And you look at their purses, they cannot compete with New York, with Arkansas, with Kentucky. I mean, Kentucky is running $130,000 allowance races and that sort of thing. So that's something that is, has been a, a factor in this. I mean, if they had slot machines, like everybody else in the world seems to uh, this day and age, um, they would be, this would not have happened. Uh, it would be a, a totally different picture. But Randy, now let's look forward to this and, and, and kind of look beyond. So in December, Golden Gate will close. What's going to happen next? How much will this benefit Southern California racing? Because that's what they're looking for. They're looking to increase field size. And they're also looking, they said, to go to a fourth day of racing uh, when they've only been able to run three days. So you would uh, assume there is going to be an influx of horses that will come down from the north. Maybe not all. Maybe a lot of trainers won't. But I think in trying to solve that problem where you just don't have enough horses to go around at San Nita to have four days of racing, to have sizes, I think that this will go, uh, will help solve that problem. How, how do you see this playing out? Yeah, I think this is a three-part problem, really. Uh, the first part, the field size, you're talking about the consolidation of racing. I think it'll help somewhat. I'm not sure it'll help as much as Santa Anita would like it to help because, let's face it, a lot of the horses that compete at Golden Gate are of the cheaper variety, and there really aren't races for those types of horses at Santa Anita, and I don't necessarily think they want to cheapen the Santa Anita racing program. I think you'll see some of the major trainers, obviously, at Golden Gate that might relocate down to Southern California, uh, a la Jerry Hollendorfer earlier, you know, a, a, a decade or so ago. Uh, but I don't think you're going to get a wholesale transfer of horses and horsemen from Golden Gate um, down to Santa Anita. Uh, I think the second component of this was the deteriorating business at Golden Gate. It was not a very profitable racetrack, which sort of ties into the third issue, which we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and that is the value of the land on which Golden Gate sits, especially in Southern California or even you know Northern California. Property values have just skyrocketed, especially in desirable neighborhoods. And Golden Gate sits on a very, very uh, lucrative piece of property that can be much more beneficial financially used for purposes other than thoroughbred racing. It's scary because there are a lot of racetracks in America that would fall under that category, including Santa Anita, which I think is protected, basically, uh, 
legislatively, but there are a lot of racetracks that uh, that you could use that description for. So I think there those three reasons are why Golden Gate is closing, but I don't think it's going to be as much of a boon to Santa Anita as one might hope. Well, when considering what kind of boom it's going to be to Santa Anita, there's another factor that we have to see how it plays out. And you know, you look at this, what Golden Gate uh, runs, what, nine, 10 months a year. The other part, portion of the season is the California, Northern California Fairs. And we're hearing from them, they say, hold on, wait a minute. Uh, Golden Gate goes away. We, we're not going to take over all the dates, but there's talk of expansion of the fairs. And if the fair circuit could offer seven months of racing a, a year, then I think that's going to really put a chink in the armor of what Santa Anita is trying to accomplish there. Um, you know, remember, if you close Golden Gate, that doesn't mean you've closed down Northern California racing altogether. It, it's a robust fair circuit, some nice little tracks, and uh, we're going to have to see what happens with them. And uh, I just want to bring up one other factor before we, we want to move on to. There's some, you know, you see the comments out there, you know, people saying, well, Here's what happened. This happened because remember, we talked about on the show either last week or the week before the politician in Berkeley, California, trying to put through an ordinance that essentially would have closed down Golden Gate Fields. I don't think that personally had anything to do with this. I think this was obviously something that's been in planning stages for months. And um, I, I don't think that anybody should have been that fearful of, of that uh, going through. OK, so let's shift gears now um, into. So we're recording this on Tuesday. In uh, the TDN website today, a very powerful piece from Jerry Brown, the uh, master of the thoroughgraph speed figure services. And uh, this is something Jerry has been talking to me about forever. And uh, he wrote about the com computer assisted wagering, which we have talked about with Pat Cummings on this show. And Randy, he painted a pretty bleak picture. And when you put the numbers down on paper like Jerry did, it, th this is not that we didn't know this was a problem, but. You know, you look at this and you got to take a pause saying, wow, this is a serious problem. Nobody seems to have an answer for it. But, you know, what did you make of Jerry's uh, op-ed in the TDN? Yeah. Uh, I thought it was very well done. I strongly encourage everyone to read it uh, at TDN. Jerry Brown is a smart guy. Uh, he and Pat Cummings are actually, I think, the two people who have advocated the hardest for horse players out there. And Jerry is in a unique position from which to do it because he's a pretty major horse player himself. He deals with a lot of big time horse players uh, with his Thoroughgraph company. And he also uh, deals with horsemen as well. So he's very well-rounded and he's a numbers guy. So he understands the numbers of this situation uh, very well. I think the, the point that he made, and I'll be brief, uh, that I thought was the most concerning is that the CAWs we know, we've talked about it, have driven some of the rank and file horse players out of the game. And if it continues at the pace it's at right now, then you can foresee the CAWs actually cutting back on their wagering. Because as the smaller horse players leave, the CAWs are basically betting against themselves. And so they're going to necessarily have to cut back their wagers to avoid cannibalizing themselves in the marketplace. And then that would lead to a spiral where purses decrease and everyone in the industry, not just the horse players, begin to feel the effects. That, I think, is probably the most salient point that Jerry made. But I encourage everybody to read that. It's a, a very well thought out, very well written uh, letter. to the editor. Yeah. When you have these guys, when you have the uh, whales taking a disproportionate amount of money in winnings out of the pool, 
then you know what does that do to everybody else? I don't know where he came up with this number, but Jerry estimated because of the CAWs, the effective takeout for everybody else is about 30%. And that sounds about right to me. And you know, look, horse racing with a 20% takeout, which is always kind of the number that we always were accepting. That's a real tough game to begin with. You have the 30%. You just, I, I mean, nobody can win it with a 30% takeout. So um, please take a look at that uh, story from Jerry Brown, and um, we'll continue to stay on top of that subject. We want to remind you that the TDN Writers' Room is brought to you by Keeneland. The first TDN Rising Star of the Saratoga meeting was a Keeneland September graduate. Ahoy, matey. His name is Pirate. Read by Peter Blum. He was actually went to the September sale with that name and was purchased by Harold Ventures LLC and Starlight Racing for 350000 at last year's September sale. He dominated his first start. Now, he got off perhaps just a little bit flat-footed and really made all the running. He was tested every step of the way and drew off like a good horse to win while geared down by three lengths. Trainer Todd Pletcher and Starlight's Jack Wolf indicated that the grade one hopeful or the grade two Saratoga special could be next. Keeneland is home of the world's yearling sale. The energy, magic, and momentum of the September yearling sale returns on September the 11th through September the 23rd. Learn more at theworldsyearlingsale.com. We'll be right back after this message from Keeneland. If this place could talk, it would roar. It would say, this is racing. This beating heart in the heart of horse country. Steady and strong beneath the roar. Reminding us why. For the love of the horse. For generations to come. The Fastest Horse of the Week is brought to you by the Fast Stallions at Windstar Farm. This week, the Windstar Spotlight is on the fastest son of Into Mischief, and that's saying a lot. Life is good. Racked up four grade one wins, including a career-high 112 buyer speed figure, one of his nine triple-digit buyers in Life is Good's exceptional first book of 192 mares this year. 70 of those mares either won graded six on the track or previously produced graded six winners, including 25 grade one winners. The Windstar future is looking very good indeed for Life is Good. Our fastest horse of the week emerged from a Friday allowance sprint at Monmouth. You may remember Benavengo as the long shot who actually outran Jack Christopher to the lead in last year's Haskell Stakes. Well, after that race, he scored a very impressive seven and a half length win at a stakes at Pimlico. And after five straight two turn races Friday, Benavengo was back down to the six furlong distance, won by five and a half lengths with the buyer speed figure of 104, the best of the week. Benavengo, trained by Jesus Cruz, owned by the Wasabi Ventures stable of venture capitalist Tom T.K. Kugler. It's Kugler's best horse to date, and Benavengo is fast. In fact, he is the fastest horse of the week. So opening weekend at Saratoga and uh, a couple of stories. Unfortunately, one was that the weather just absolutely stunk. And we'll get into that a, a little bit later. But the big race on Saturday, the grade one was the Diana. 
And I, uh, even though the horse was one to five, I thought in Italian should have been one to a thousand in that spot. My goodness, Randy, towered over the field on the figures, lone speed in the race. How is Chad Brown possibly going to get beat? Well, he's going to get beat by himself, which we've seen so many times. Five horses in the race, four of them trained by Chad Brown, and he pulled off the mini upset with white beam. But a lot of grumbling about the fact that Chad Brown had four of the five horses in the field. The year before, he had four of six. And uh, I'm not going to name the turf rider, but one turf rider came out and called the race an abomination. Ah, come on. It wasn't an abomination. But nonetheless, um, you know, this is, I think, kind of like what we were talking about with the CAW is one of those problems that there's no real answer to. Can't blame Chad Brown. Uh, I mean, he's, he gets all the good horses because he's very good at what he does. Can't blame owners for giving him horses. Matter of fact, I bet you he could have run seven or eight in that race if he had so uh, uh, desired to do that. But we are seeing with the super trainers uh, patterns of this happening. Chad Brown in Philly and Mayer turf races, oftentimes going to have 75% of the field. And Bob Baffert with three-year-old races on the dirt preps for the Kentucky Derby, we had the same thing happening. The Robert B. Lewis this year, he had all four horses in the race. Two questions, Randy, and also for Zoe. Do you have a big problem with this? And if you do, what can be done about it? Uh, first, quickly, about the Diana itself. Uh, uh, in Italian, I might not have run her very best race, but she ran close to it and just got outrun. She kicked pretty hard. A mile and an eighth may not be her absolute best distance. But White Bean was coming off a visually very impressive win at Pimlico. Uh, you could expect, uh, you know, White, White Bean to really uh, take a step forward. And she did. As it turned out, it was good enough to catch in Italian. Now, whether she could do it at a mile or not, I doubt it. But uh, a legitimate win by White Bean about the super trainer thing. I, I think it hurts the game. When, when I first came around a long time ago, uh, trainers were pretty much limited to 30 or 40 stalls at each racetrack. Now we've seen the super trainers, and it's not their fault, as you point out. Uh, your Todd Pletcher's, your Chad Brown's, your Brad Cox's, your Bob. Not so much Baffert. He doesn't take the numbers that some of these other guys have. But you're talking about trainers that have 200, 250 horses under their care. And that impacts field sizes, especially in Southern California. But even attracts with the higher horse population because trainers parcel, they ration out their horses so they don't run against each other. And if some of those horses were in the hands of other trainers, then you would see larger field sizes. And I think that's the primary problem right now with the rise of the super trainer. I don't see anything wrong with even though you have training centers now, uh, they're still sanctioned by race tracks. And I don't see any any problem. I'm sure the super trainers would. But limiting trainers to, let's say, 60 horses apiece or 70 horses apiece or whatever, and helping other trainers out and helping the game out by distributing some of those horses to other qualified, talented, very good horsemen uh, who right now are getting the opportunity to train some of those horses. I agree with you, Randy. And back to the Diana White beam. I mean, at the end of the day, it was a nose loss. I think perhaps hindsight is twenty twenty. Maybe an Italian should have just gone on and put a little bit of separation between them because visually, as you mentioned, that race at Pimlico was very, very good. Uh, Flavian Pratt 
perfect ride. He was drawn on the outside. He knew exactly where to be. Didn't go head and head with an Italian because that's going to get him fired from the Chad Brown stable. Nobody's that stupid. But he did just enough to be in the exact right spot where he had the best chance to overtake. So good race. I think we're going to see a lot more from White Beam in this in the upcoming summer. And, and one other thing, I believe there's a rule in Kentucky, correct me if I'm wrong, a trainer can only enter one horse in a race. So what happened in the Diana cannot happen in Kentucky. If you enter, I think it, to the exclusion of having another trainer not being able to enter their horse. So say if Chad could only enter one, maybe some more people would enter more. I'm not really sure how that would work. I just don't think anyone wanted to run against an Italian. Now, hindsight, maybe they should have. Maybe there should have been more rabbits in there. Maybe you'll get bigger fields. I don't know what the answer is. Well, in this I, case, it was, it was a nose defeat, right? But yeah. it was also a six-pound weight swing. An Italian yeah. was carrying six pounds more than white beam. So, really, an Italian was the best horse in the race. Uh, she got beat, from obviously, from a competitive standpoint. But that had a lot to do with it as well. Four different major owners for Chad Brown represented, and that may be his best four owners. You have Peter Brandt, Seth Klarman, Judd Mott, and Saul Cuman all had horses in there. So you can't blame Chad for giving all those owners a chance to run their top horses. Look what happened. Yeah, I don't want to, uh, I want to move on to other subjects, but I would not be in favor of any restrictions on these guys. It's just sort of, you know, it's free enterprise. It strikes me a little bit as un-American. Um, but again, I'm not saying that it's not a problem. Um, if you were betting chalk on Saturday at Saratoga in stakes races, oh boy, in Italian beaten at 35 cents uh, on the dollar, that's one to five on the board. Then in the Sanford gold sweep, how does he get beat? Well, he got beat because he had a terrible start, stumbles at the start. He was also 35 cents on the dollar, got only a 71 buyer, the winner in there, Yo-Yo Candy. Won at 46 to 1. Casa Creed, he's a cool old guy, isn't he? He came through in the Kelso. So those were the big uh, races and the big stories on Saturday. Uh, Zoe, Randy, what else uh, caught your attention over the weekend at Saratoga? Okay, so Gold Sweep was the overwhelming favorite in the Sanford. He, he did stumble, and he did, but I thought maybe he should have overcome it. I think the main problem that he had in the running of the race was – the fact he got so much kickback and obviously not used to it, only making, you know, it's just a couple of starts already. So that really hindered him. But I thought maybe he should have been able to overcome that. What do you think, Randy? Yeah, the race was run with a 71 buyer speed figure. So, yeah, you can make the case that if he was, you know, as good maybe as his 91 buyer speed figure in the Tremont would indicate that he might be able to win anyway. But your point about the kickback is well taken. A lot of those horses were coming back at Saratoga last week, just absolutely covered in kickback. And for a young two-year-old, that's got to be a real wake-up call uh, because he was last for most of the early part of the race after stumbling so badly at the start. Um he should have won the race. You get a lot of low speed figures, actually, in some of these two year old stakes races at Saratoga, especially early in the meet. Uh, so that was really no shock to me. Take nothing away from the trainer. Well done, Danny Velasquez. His first graded stakes at Saratoga. He was one pumped up guy with his cowbred standing in the winner's circle. Yeah, the little guy from Parks takes down the giant in Steve Asmussen. Um, business stunk at Saratoga. As I said, the weather stunk. The first four days in the meet, they're off 22.6% 
after posting record handles in both 2022 and 2021. Um, we talked about that with Andy Serling last week, and he warned us. He says, we're going to look like geniuses if the weather's good, and we're going to look like fools if the weather is bad. So on Friday and Sunday, uh, the races were washed off the turf. Eight turf races were taken off between the two days. But having said all that, look, it's early. They get a pass for the two uh, days where the races came off the turf. But on Saturday, when the races were run on the turf, you had an apples to apples comparison from 2022. They're still down 14.4%. Um, I wouldn't be, if I were Naira, I wouldn't be panicking about this, but I would be a little bit concerned. It's definitely something to watch as the meeting progresses. Uh, absolutely. I mean, obviously, when races are washed off the turf like that, it impacts field size, it impacts the handicapping of those races. So a lot of people just take a pass. Uh, but apples to apples comparisons are certainly legit. And uh, it's a, I think it's a cause for concern, but not of panic. There is more rain in the forecast as well, just in case anyone's not. Oh, no. How about the Skylaville and Becky's Joker, sure. Gary Contessa? First time starter. I saw her in a paddock. She's huge. She's every bit of 16-3. Adores for practical joke. How impressive was she? Yeah, she was great. And Gary Contessa, one of the good guys in the game. He's could have been in and out. And uh, had uh, big cojones running that Philly first time out in a two-year-old stake. And uh, he certainly knew what he was doing. So congratulations to the whole team and Gary Contessa. Winning the Schuylerville on opening day at Saratoga. TV and Riders Room is also brought to you by the PHBA, the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association. Speaking of Saratoga, the Pennsylvania bred turf sprinter extraordinaire, Caravelle, worked a half mile Saturday, 48.88, over the Oklahoma turf course. Her next target, the Troy Stakes on August the 5th, won last year by Golden Pal. Most recently, Caravelle, of course, won the grade one Jiper Stakes at Belmont Park, again defeating males. Now at the risk of jinxing her, Caravelle hasn't lost on turf in almost a full year. Her last defeat on grass was July 23rd in the Caress Stakes at Saratoga. July 23rd, obviously 2022. That's six consecutive turf wins. Caravelle obviously doesn't need to run against Pennsylvania breads, but if she did, the 29 PA bred turf stakes this year are worth over $4 million. Now here's more from the PHBA. The PA Horse Breeders Association presents the Pennsylvania Stallion Series. Six races for PA sire, PA bred two-year-olds at parks. Two $100,000 contests at five and a half furlongs. On August 21st, PA Day at the races. September 23rd, PA Derby Day has two races at six and a half furlongs, both with a $150,000 purse. And in December, two races going long, each worth $200,000. For more, go to pabred.com. The Saratoga Minute is brought to you by Naira Betts. One of the potential stars of this Saratoga meet is the undefeated three-year-old filly, Maple Leaf Mel, who's being pointed for the grade one test stakes on August the 5th. Here is TDN's Katie Petruniak with the filly's namesake, trainer Melanie Giddings. Mal is, she's pretty special. You know, we always knew she was a little different since the first day we've had her in the barn. She's just loves what she does. I mean, you take her to the track and she's so excited to train. I think for 
her being a good racehorse is just the fact that she loves her job. Her last race was pretty impressive. You know, I had spoke to Jeremiah when the, the PPs came out and I said, well, I drew the toughest field, you know, to have her in my name for the first time. And, and he said, don't worry, don't worry. You know, he's right. She doesn't care who it is and horses don't read the form. And she went over there like every other time and put on a show. She came out of the race in, in good shape. You know, she's, she's feeling frisky and she's going to the test and it'll be the biggest race of her life. The Saratoga Minute is brought to you by Naira Bet. Sign up now for Naira Bets and get a matching deposit of up to $200. Bet any track, any time, anywhere. Just make a deposit within 30 days of signing up for your account. Then bet twice the amount of that initial deposit. And Naira Bets will send you a wagering credit matching your first deposit. Sign up with promo code SPA200 to get your deposit match today. The TD Riders Room, brought to you by The Green Group. Founder Lynn Green has a condition book filled with ways to save people in the horse business money on your taxes. And we welcome in now the Green Group guest of the week, a frequent visitor here to the Thoroughbred Daily News Riders Room, the CEO and president of the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority, better known, are also known as HISA. Welcome in now, Lisa Lazarus. Lisa, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Bill. Very happy to be here. Yeah, well, certainly a lot to talk about. And Lisa, I think it's fair to say that there's some things that have happened since the rollout on May 22nd of the HIWU slash ADMC that have not gone maybe perfectly. Perhaps rocky is another word. I don't know. Um, But are there things that you guys look back on now, say that maybe we could have done differently or maybe have done better? And if so, what are they? So uh, let me start by saying like this is I'm sure you understand, but like an incredibly massive undertaking um, that we you know had to have up and running in a relatively short period of time um, to take, you know, the anti-doping testing in every state and bring it under one set of national uniform rules was not only you know a huge challenge from a substantive rulemaking standpoint, but also from a logistical standpoint. So, you know, I'm, I'm a very hard marker, so there are always things to do better. But I have to say that overall, I'm really pleased with the rollout. Um, the things that we've had to adjust are really things that for me are on the margins. Um, you know, and I've always said that this is such a massive undertaking and so important that we're going to have to adjust, you know, once we actually implement and look at what we, you know, what we didn't get right and and make sure that we accommodate that. And I think, you know, if we look at probably the main thing that you're referring to, which was the intra-articular ejection workout rule, um, we just got it wrong. You know, it just, you know, we just got it wrong. I mean, there's really nothing more I can say. Um, But what I'm proud of is that, you know, we're a team that when we realize we get something wrong, we don't sort of sit on ego or stand on principle and say, we don't care. We're going to just power through. We try to fix it. So I realize that that's going to always, you know, yield some criticism. And I accept that because sure, ideally it would be better not to have gotten it wrong. Um, but I think of all of the things that we've had to implement, um, it's not surprising to me that we got a few things wrong. Lisa, Randy, if you hold on a second, I just want to follow up on that. What specifically do you think you got wrong about that? The fact that these horses raced, where they should have been on the suspended list, that's something else? 
a number of things, to be honest. Right. Um, yeah. First, uh, I think the sanction was way too um, too onerous, given if you look at the entire structure of the sanctioning system, um, it was just way too severe of a sanction to penalize a trainer for 60 days. When you look at a controlled medication violation like Butte comes for, with the first offense just with a fine, that really seems out of whack. And, you know, to be honest, we spent so much time as a group beta testing and doing all kinds of simulations around the substances and what penalty they should each yield for a positive test that we obviously didn't look carefully enough at the medication methods. So one, we got we got the penalty wrong. Um, and two, what happened was that HIWU was set up, I think, extremely well to deal with a laboratory comes back with a positive sample. We report that sample. We, we issue a violation notice and they weren't expecting to have so many violations of the workout rule at the outset. And so what also happened and what caused a sort of secondary problem is that the volume was so significant that they just were not able to get the notices out in time for the individual trainers to be aware that they actually had a violation. And so they might have, you know, trained or worked out during that interim period. So it wasn't that trainers weren't heeding the notices. It was that just given the short timeline, not all of them were going out in a timely fashion. Um, we've since fixed that the, the ADMC committee, which actually is the committee that's authorized to make rules and, and make changes. They debated this rule, you know, heavily after obviously the launch and after we recognized the issues with it and they reached the conclusion that the time frame for um for allowing a, a horse to to work out after intraarticular injection should not be changed they felt that the seven days was the appropriate time period but they certainly agreed with me that the sanction was too onerous and and then instead set up a, a you know a sanctioning system that has a fine as a first violation and then you know builds from there so, as we all know, in the infancy of, uh, of any rollout like this, the uh, potential problems are always going to get magnified. They're going to get more attention than maybe the, the positives. Uh, but I think one of the biggest uh, concerns that detractors had was that HISA wouldn't be flexible enough to make these changes. And it's nice to hear you say that. What about another complaint? And that is the provisional suspensions. Uh, and the possible lack of due process for trainers who are immediately put under the provisional suspension sanction. What are your thoughts on that? So that's obviously a massive change for the horse racing industry, but it is a, a rule set in the system that's in place in every Olympic sport, including the equestrian Olympic disciplines, as well as almost all of the international racing governing bodies. And really the theory behind it is that the rationale for the program is that it's set up to protect the clean trainers, the ones that are following the rules and the greater good of the industry. So the calculus is, and first of all, I think everyone knows that we have two, essentially two programs, the controlled medication, which is the therapeutics, things you're allowed to use outside of the race period. We don't have provisional suspensions imposed for those violations. It's only for the banned substances that the committee has determined to be essentially doping substances, performance enhancing substances. The calculus is, and when we get a positive back is the risk to the industry and the trainers that are competing cleanly and following the rules is too high to allow that trainer to continue to race horses while the case is going through the various steps. Okay, it's not a final determination. Um, as you've seen, um, that trainer can provide evidence or information immediately 
to HIWU, to the to the agency. They can ask for a provisional hearing very quickly, essentially within a week. And if there is evidence that suggests that there's a chance they might succeed on the merits, the suspension will be lifted. If you look at the Ray Handel case, you know, that case is not over. I know there's a lot of misinformation about it. That case is still going through all of the steps and it will be resolved when 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 the when all the proceedings are done. But once Mr. Handel provided evidence um, that there was actually, you know, a, a meaningful possibility that it could be contamination, Hybo reacted very quickly. I mean, it was like I think it was like five days or four days from the imposition to to the lifting. So Ultimately, um, the, the, you know, the assessment is that we really want to make sure that we're protecting clean trainers. And I guess one other example I'll give, and I really believe in this system because I imposed it when I was hired by the International Equestrian Federation in 2010, when they had a bunch of positives coming out of the Beijing Olympic Games and were threatened with losing their place in the Olympic program. And this is what, you know, in my view, really saved and solidified their place. But if you take a trainer, like, for example, we have a trainer in California who has multiple positives for the same substance. I'm not going to address whether or not it's his fault, if it was contamination, all of that he'll have his chance to argue in court. But the reality is that he has a performance enhancing substance in essentially all of his horses, right? Is it fair to let that trainer continue to train horses and compete against other trainers in California or wherever when there's a likelihood that it's in all of his horses? And that's really the calculus of the program. Yeah, I, I'm, I fully understand that. So with the Ray Handel case, and I brought this up last year, his horse has left his barn for six days. What happens in 30 days time if he comes back and has a positive test for a horse that may or may not have been in his barn during those six days? Like what happens there? It seems like it's not quite black and white. So first of all, one thing I want to clear up is that um, if you're provisionally suspended, not finally suspended, but just provisionally, you're not required to 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 essentially either leave the premises, leave the barn or transfer your horses. You can race them or work them. So, you know, ultimately, obviously, you're not going to do that for a long period of time, but you can you know, you're allowed to care for your horses and jog them and gallop them, just not not race or et cetera. Um, once you transfer those horses and if they're in a new trainer's name then obviously the responsibility shifts. But of course, because everything in our system is fact-based and we look at fault, um, if if a horse tests positive for a substance that would likely have to been in the horse, you know, a week prior, Highwood will obviously investigate that and take note of that and charge the appropriate trainer. Does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. I've got one more. Sure. Um, it, it seems like it's it's a very expensive task to try and defend yourself. We heard about several trainers last week that perhaps couldn't afford the initial payout to hire a lawyer and get the proper representation. Is there going to be anything to help the smaller trainer or are they just going to be thrown to the wolves? So I think also a little bit of there might be some misinformation in there. So, so I can just quickly explain how it works cost wise. So for the controlled medication um, violations, there's no cost at all to use the system. Of course, you want to hire a lawyer. You have you have to hire them. But that's the same as it's always been with state racing commissions. Right. Um, with the banned substances cases, there is no upfront fee. 
But the Haiwu prosecutor, the one bringing the case on behalf of the of, of the regular, on behalf of Haiza, can ask the arbitrator to apportion some costs to the trainer. That will be based on, you know, the trainer's level of culpability, their financial situation. They'll take all that into consideration. But there are no upfront costs. The only upfront costs um, are the B sample um, analysis if you choose to have the B sample tested. Um, but. You raise a very good point, and it's funny because I actually raised this in our staff meeting a few weeks ago, as I've asked one of our in-house lawyers to look at potentially having a sort of pro bono program where maybe we work with the University of Kentucky or a different um, or some law schools that we do have, and we train various lawyers in the system to be able to offer that. So it's, we don't have it right now, but I, it's actually something that I really would like to do, and I think you raise a you know an important point. Yeah, at least you mentioned when a when a trainer is provisionally suspended. Uh, even during the brief period of time when he's when he wants to dispute it, they're not allowed to race a horse, which is totally understandable, but also not allowed to work a horse. Uh, does that apply to all training of horses? Can they go out to gallop? Is it just breezes yes, that are restricted? Just publicly reported works. And what's the thinking um, behind that? The thinking behind that is that that's truly engaging in the sport itself. And so we we limit it to, you know, racing and, and published works, but everything else they can do from a horse welfare standpoint. We're never going to say a horse has to stand in its box. You know what I mean? If you don't want to give up the horse, we obviously want horses to be able to move and do what they normally do. But we don't want that trainer to be able to benefit from the sport of racing during that time frame. Lisa, I want to follow up on a question Randy asked you earlier about the idea that uh, why the people that are, are provisionally suspended for a banned substance, why this action is taken immediately. I, I totally understand uh, where you're coming from, from this. And I don't think anybody would disagree with, hey, if these guys are really up to some, you know, quote unquote, bad stuff, we something needs to be done and step in and stop them. But we have heard from, you know, some of the, the trainers and, and, you know, primarily from their lawyers that they need you need to rethink the banned substance list that some of the things on there really aren't all that serious. And at the end of the day, you know, might be something that are, are deserving of 15, 20 day suspensions, but not the more draconian measures that are put forth. Is that something that maybe HISA slash HIWU will take another look at that maybe we need to rethink the substances that are on the banned substance list? Yeah. So, I mean, to start that, that one's a little bit above my pay grade. I'm, I'm not the one who obviously don't have, you know, a veterinary degree or a pharmacology degree. So I'm not the one who actually determines how a substance is classified. But absolutely, that's something that we need to look at regularly. And actually, we also invite members of the public to provide, you know, if they if they have a recommendation, particularly one that's based on science or have any sort of evidence that a substance is either classified wrongly, so it should be a controlled medication instead of a banned substance or shouldn't be on the list at all, or, or that, you know, maybe we've forgotten should be added to the list. So, yes, we will constantly review that. And that's really important. And 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 I, I fully agree. I can't speak to whether at this point in time um, we've gotten any of those substances wrong, but it's certainly something we need to review. So I know I'm, this may be pushing the ball a little too quickly down the road. You got to walk before you run. But on that same topic, I think we all know that if you go back and look over the last couple of years or indefinitely, really, in horse racing, like 99.9% of all the positive tests are overages of therapeutic medications, right? Uh, when most people believe that the problem if, you know, the doping problem that would exist in thoroughbred racing are those substances that can't be detected by regular tests. And that's where the investigatory arm 
really comes into play. What's what's the status of that right now with high standards? So I'm going to answer that question, but I want to just say one quick thing, if you don't mind, before, which is relevant sure. to your question, which is that if you had to, if you ask me, what's your biggest surprise since launching? I would say the ratio between the banned substance positives and the overages, because actually. We, we started off with way more banned substances and now we're almost like at 50 50. It's not, it's not totally representative from the, from the, um, from, from what's published because we published banned before we published controlled medication. But it's actually, we, I've been incredibly pleased with the low number of overages that we have, which suggests to me the trainers were really listening to that part of the education, really listening to what changes that they make to their programs and surprised by the number of banned substances. Um, it's way higher than I expected. And I think that's a function of um, our program testing for a different menu than has previously been used and really sort of, you know, covering the cost of a, of a completely comprehensive testing menu. Um, in terms of the investigations, you know, we have an extremely, you know, well-resourced investigations unit. Um, Sean Richards, you may know, is the, is the FBI agent who was the one who did all of the investigations into the prosecutions in New York against Mr. Navarro and Mr. Service. He has a lot of expertise, a lot of familiarity with horse racing. And, and they're and they are involved in, you know, some some pretty meaningful investigations that are outside of the of the positive tests. So I do think, you know, I gotta give them time to, to kind of do their work. But I do think, you know, if I'm back on in three or six months, there'll be more to discuss on that front. Um, I have a plan. I ha I spend an awful lot of time at the horse sales, weanlings, yearlings, two-year-olds. You have a, a covered horses plan. Is there any plan to extend this to perhaps from the day they are foaled? Because, you know, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but there's certain things that go on in prepping yearlings, weanlings for horse sales that perhaps shouldn't go on. Yeah. And people that buy these horses later on, may may feel the effects of that yeah. with all the rules in place. I think you're right, and I really hope so. Um, unfortunately, the law, as it's written, it's not actually our rules. It's the HISA Act itself doesn't start until a horse has its first reported workout or race. And so we don't have authority or jurisdiction over those horses. But I really hope that if we can ultimately get to a place where the majority of the industry believes that this, this is working, that we can also um, sort of reach further back to, to the sales. And I got one more. Sure. Um, the horse injury and fatality database was mm -hmm. supposed to be transparent with HISA. Are we any further forward in getting this out in front of the public? Yeah, we are. I mean, we don't. So the equine injury database is not is not owned by Heiser. That's that's you know with the with the Jockey Club and, and Tim Parkin, and we um, we are we are allowed and, and permitted and required actually to to essentially seek all of that data from from the race checks, and they're required to provide it to us. Whereas the EID was voluntary, um, so we are in the process of collecting all of that data, um, and and we will make it public once once we have it, and we. Have have we recently announced we have over 1 million veterinary records in our system now um we've we're getting a ton of data in and we're just working on ways to you know present it in a way that's understandable to make sure that we're that's it's, it's well scrubbed that it's everything is working properly but once we do we will share it lisa i give you credit for choosing this point in time to come on because um you probably didn't expect a lot of softball questions considering some of the things that have been going on with heisa so i'll take my foot off the gas pedal a little bit here what have you guys done well since the rollout? What are you proud of and where do you think HISA is working? 
So one, I'm proud of the professionalism of our teams. Um, you know, we send uh, testing, you know, testers, collection personnel, veterinarians into every single racetrack um, that we cover. So almost every racetrack in this country, the race is thoroughbreds. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of animosity, a lot of fear, a lot of trepidation. And I believe that our personnel have done an incredible job disarming that to the extent that they can, making people feel comfortable, teaching them the system, being transparent. Um, I'm proud of the fact that, you know, you can, you can go within 24 hours of a trainer being served with a notice that he tested positive or her, she tested positive for a ban, or their horse did for a banned substance that's publicly available on the website. Um, I'm proud of the fact that we're actually finding a lot. Um, and the, and, you know, whether rightly or wrongly, whether it was intentional or not, the industry is learning from what, from what we're finding. And I believe that we're all going to be better off for it. And I, I'm a huge believer in the provisional suspension. I know it's tough and people have got to adjust to it and we've got to make sure that everything is okay, um, in terms of how it operates, but it's a game changer because otherwise you just, there's just so much incentive to kick things down the road. Do you really believe that any trainer would have come forward within 48 hours of a notification with information that was exculpatory if he or she was not frequently suspended? We need to get these things moving more quickly. They lose all efficacy if it's three years down the road and no one remembers. So I'm proud of the speed and the transparency. Did you realize it would be so hard? Like when you took this job, you're a smart woman. Did you <laughs> know it was going to be this hard? You know, I, I didn't, to be fair. Um, I'm surprised by, you know, what I was surprised, really, truly, what, what, what makes it harder than I expected was that I thought, you know, I've done sports regulation before. Okay, change is hard. I didn't expect, like, so much of the political animosity, the sort of feeling this was the federal government intervening, because that's really not the case. It's a federal law or a private entity. I didn't expect as much pushback as we've had. Um but again, I, I sort of go back to, I think my team, so many of them come from racing. You know, you've got the Mark Guilfoyles, the Jennifer Durenbergers. They're trying every single day to explain and to be available to, to industry participants so that over time, I think we can build trust. And I think if we build trust um, that, you know, over time we'll be OK. But yes, definitely harder than I expected. <laughs> Well, uh, nobody ever said this was going to be easy, Lisa, but um, we're thankful very much so that you've uh, decided to spend some time with us here and clear up a lot of things that are going on with HISA, HIWU, et cetera. Thanks for joining us this week as a Green Group Guest of the Week. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Have a good week. Green Group Guest of the Week, Lisa Lazarus, will receive another free one-hour tax consultation with the Green Group. At this rate, the government will wind up owing Lisa money. For more information on how the Green Group can help you, go to www.greenco.com. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport, like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonder Wheel. 
His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. Introducing Gift Box, winner of the Grade 1 Santa Anita Handicap. He's a three-time graded stakes winning millionaire with four triple-digit buyers and a four ragazin to his name. He proved himself early as a graded stakes place two-year-old, and now his career as a stallion is just getting started. From the first crop of the leading sire twirling candy out of a multiple graded stakes producing mare. Gift Box, only at Lane's End. The TDM Rices Room is brought to you by Lane's End. The Lane's End Stallion of the Week is Twirling Candy. Twirling Candy was the sire of the first two-year-old winner at the Saratoga meeting when Sugar High cruised home a six-length winner for Hall of Famer Bill Mott. It was the start of a six-win week for Twirling Candy, topped by Cherry Pie's win in the My Frenchman Stakes at Monmouth Park. So guys, some sad news last week, the passing of Funny Side, the 2003 Kentucky Derby and Preakness winner. Was he the best horse we've seen in our lifetimes? No, he wasn't. He won 11 of 38 starts uh, after the Triple Crown. He struggled a little bit, though he did win the 2004 Jockey Club Gold Cup. But boy, take us back to those days in the Kentucky Derby, Preakness, and Belmont of 2003. What a cool horse he was and what a cool story uh, he was throughout all that. And over the last 20 years, the New York Times has absolutely trashed horse racing relentlessly. But in 2003, in an editorial, this is what they, horse racing haters, had to say about Funny Side. He says he is a rare reminder that sports are supposed to be fun. So if he doesn't win the Belmont, he has already done more than his fair share to raise the spirits of more than a few dispirited New Yorkers. He got beat that day by Empire Maker, but 101,000. 864 people turned out to Belmont Park to watch him run and try to sweep the Triple Crown. Randy, uh, I already see on both your face and Zoe's just thinking about this big smile on your face and uh, for good reason. What a horse. Oh, we could do the whole segment on Funny Side and telling Funny Side stories. Sacatoga Stable, the Yellow School Buses, New York Breds weren't supposed to win the Kentucky Derby. Geldings weren't supposed to win the Kentucky Derby. And then he comes back two weeks later and just demolishes the field in the Preakness by nine and three quarters lengths. The thing that that I remember the most, or there's a lot of memories, you know, little Jose Santos Jr. is a lot of things about the horse. But uh, I want to give credit to Barkley Tag. And Robin Smullen for always doing the right thing by the horse, right? And, and Barkley's got a reputation for that, right? Uh, toward the end of his career, he was on, yeah, he lost 15 of his last 18 races. And when they ran him in his final start, it was at Finger Lakes in July of 2007 in a race called the Wadsworth Memorial. They doubled the purse in that race to $100,000 to get him. Big turnout at Finger Lakes. The horse won. Jack Knowlton had been talking before the race about how, you know, Funny Side had never been sounder, doing so well. They'll spot him creatively the rest of his career. Well, nine days after that race, after a conversation between Jack Knowlton 
and Barkley Tag, uh, the decision was made at Tag's advice to retire Funnyside, to let him go out a winner, uh, to not keep him running. He was seven years old at that time and risk anything happening to him. So they turned him for a year at least into a stable pony and you could walk the backside at Belmont Park, maybe, and you could see him tied up outside, <laughs> just standing there. Kentucky Derby winner, funny side, happy as a clam. You know, <laughs> Saratoga, he'd be tied to a telephone pole. Uh, and then after a year of that, uh, he was starting to feel the effects physically of a long racing career, plus going out all the time on the track as a stable pony. And again, Tag did the right thing by the horse and retired him from his stable pony duties and sent him to the Kentucky Horse Park where he lived happily ever after. Great story. And I can remember watching and having to look up about this New York bred gelding and having no clue who he was at the beginning of his career and then being a fan. The yellow school bus goes down as one of the most memorable things I have ever seen during racing. It's just such a cool story. I'm not sure if you saw on Twitter the other day, somebody put... um, a vase of roses in Jack Knowlton's box, Sakatoga Stables box on the day that we all heard that he had died. And it was just a, a lovely thought. They went to their box for the races that day and there was some beautiful roses there, just a reminder of funny side. Yeah, the gutsy gelding, as we like to call them. Okay, let's take a look at what's coming up this weekend, um, opening weekend at Del Mar. Uh, Saratoga, of course, will have a slate of very important races, including this Coaching Club American Oaks on Saturday and a big one on Sunday in the Shoe V, expecting the uh, four-year-old debut of last year's three-year-old Philly champion, Nest. No layup there either. Clarier also expected for that race. However, the focus shifts to my hometown track, just a couple miles from my house, beautiful Monmouth Park and the Haskell. Now, we are recording this on Tuesday. We don't know yet if Mage is running. They have still haven't said. Uh, I've been texting around to Gustavo Delgado and Ramiro Restopa. Can't get an answer out of them. So we're going to have to look at this as, uh, you know, maybe with Mage, maybe without. But I think that the horse that is is really the most intriguing, even if Mage runs, is Arabian Knight. And he has, this would be his third lifetime start. He hasn't run since January 28th when he won the Southwest States. Would seem like big obstacles to overcome, but he's an immensely talented horse. We know that. And I don't think Bob Baffert would be doing this with this horse unless he was very confident he could pull it off. So uh, as much as I want to see Mage in the race, uh, there will also include some other big names like Tappet Trice, Go Rocket Ride, Extra Nejo, and Salute the Stars. Um, I'm really curious mainly about Arabian Night. Yeah. Oh, fantastic race on paper, I think. I mean, even the horses that are going to be the higher prices, Extra and Yeho, you go back and watch this race at Ellis Park, you will not see a horse win any easier than he won in that allowance race at Ellis and ran pretty fast. Salute the stars in the Pegasus Stakes. Had the worst trip of any horse in the race and still somehow managed to win anyway. But I agree with you. I think it's all about Arabian Night. I think this is a very, very talented horse. And if all goes well, uh, I think you're going to hear a lot uh, from Arabian Night as the year progresses. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if he ends the year uh, being the three-year-old champion. I know that's that's you know kind of big to say since he didn't compete in any of the Triple Crown races, but I think he's that talented. We're going to be at Haskell for NBC Sports. Uh, we'll be doing the race from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern. In a perfect world, Zoe, 
I would be at Del Mar for opening day, which is like one of my favorite racing days of the year. I only managed to do it at one time. And oh my God, it was fun. And go from Del Mar cross country straight to the Haskell. But unfortunately, not unfortunately, I love, I love the Jersey Shore. I wish I could do the daily double there, but I'll be at Haskell. Wait a minute, NBC won't get you a private jet from San Diego to uh, Newark? Uh, I am not Mike Tirico. No, I will okay. get a private jet. Right. And you know, a couple of years ago, I can remember going to opening day at Del Mar and then being in Saratoga for opening day here. It was one of the best couple of weeks ever. I spent a full weekend at Del Mar, had the great weekend there and was here in time for opening day at Saratoga. Why can't we go back to that? That'd be way more fun. A little, little spittle to the Haskell would be marvelous as well. Arabian night for me. Um, well, I know Mage is doing very well coming into it, and obviously we'll see if he runs or not, but Arabian night's a freak. Bob's very good at getting horses ready off the layoff. His works, you can check them out on XBTV, have been as good as you are ever going to see a horse work. And you bet your bottom dollar that he will be well prepared for the Haskell. The TDN Writers' Room is brought to you by XBTV. This week's XBTV Work of the Week is Forte, who worked a half mile at Saratoga on Friday. And I worked in 49 and 4 over the Oklahoma training track. A lot of people were looking for Forte all morning as he was originally scheduled to work on the main track. Todd, being the Hall of Famer he is, called an audible and took him to Oklahoma at 9.30, where he worked very, very nicely indeed in company and finished up as well as he wanted to. It was his second work since his second place finish in the Belmont Stakes. He is preparing to run in Saturday's Jim Dandy Stakes on July the 29th. We'll be right back after this message. All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TDN Riders Room is brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point partnership can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie, not to mention... Sometimes the winner's circle. West Point Thoroughbreds had two winners this past week on Monday. Don't look back at all. Won an allowance at Parks. But I want to focus on last Thursday's allowance win at Horseshoe, Indianapolis by Stone Silent in a five-furlong turf sprint. This is a three-year-old trained by Steve Asmussen who demolished older horses. This horse can run. Go back and watch that race yourself. Stone Silent will be a fun horse to follow. Meanwhile, West Point's 2023 Del Mar Challenge offers a free ownership experience to the winner, and entries are still open and will be until the first race on Friday on Del Mar's opening day. You can sign up for the West uh, for the Del Mar Challenge for free at www.westpointtb.com, or you can also keep up with the standings for the West Point Challenges at both Del Mar and Saratoga. That's a wrap on this week's show. Covered a lot of ground, and we're going to look forward to a great weekend of racing, which we'll talk to you about next week, uh, including the Haskell. I want to thank my cohorts, Randy Moss and Zoe Cabman, our producers, Katie Petronia, Anthony LaRocca, our editors, Leah LaRocca, Nathan Wilkinson, and our dual duo of mascots this week, 
Lucy and Doodle. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next week.